Welcome to this episode of the Elite Advisor Blueprint Podcast with your host, Brad Johnson. Brad's the VP of Advisor Development at Advisors Excel, the largest independent insurance brokerage company in the U.S. He's also a regular contributor to Investment News, The Wall Street Journal, and other industry publications. In this episode, I talk with David Bach, who if you've spent any amount of time in financial services, that's probably a familiar name. His resume includes nine consecutive New York Times bestsellers, including The Automatic Millionaire, Smart Couples Finish Rich, and Smart Women Finish Rich. David's been featured in national media hundreds of times, including over 100 appearances on NBC's Today Show and as a guest on The Oprah Winfrey Show a half dozen times. Besides being a recognized national spokesperson on finance, he's also spent many years in the financial advising trenches as he helped his dad and sister build the Bach Group to over half a billion dollars of assets. He also later served as the vice chairman at Edelman Financial Services, where he partnered with Rick Edelman to help them grow to 13 billion of assets during his stay. He's most recently joined our team at AE Wealth as our Director of Investor Education. And by the end of this conversation, it should be easy to see why. Here are a few highlights from our conversation. Right out of the gates, we get into David's journey that led up to his first appearance on Oprah. We get into a really fun conversation on the behind the scenes steps it took just to get on the show, and it is not an easy process. Then we dig into the secret of managing assets and proper asset allocation to retain your clients and scale your business. David's simple advice also helps protect you from losing clients during the next market correction. From there, we dig into a common struggle in financial services, the tug of war with work-life balance, and what David learned from a year-long sabbatical he took to stay at home and be a dad. And also the one habit he took up during the break that completely changed his life. We wrap on some rapid-fire tips from David that he's learned from giving public seminars to over 1 million people worldwide that advisors can use to create a better live event and more crowd engagement. Okay, before we get to the conversation, this week's free gift is hands down the coolest one we've ever offered. It's actually the opportunity to fly out to AE headquarters and hang out with David Bach himself. He'll be leading a training along with Bo Eason, for those familiar with him, and two of our top clients who each gathered over 60 million of new assets last year. Rarely do we ever do a training for non-clients. In fact, I think this is the first one we've done in two years. I just checked, we're down to three seats remaining. So for qualified advisors, we're going to pick up the full cost, including your flight. So if you'd like to see if you qualify, we've set up a simple application at bradleyjohnson.com forward slash apply, A-P-P-L-Y. Takes about five minutes to fill out. And it'd be fun to get a chance to meet some of you who've been listening in. And after this conversation, my guess is those three seats will be gone. So as always, you can find links to books mentioned, people discussed, a full transcript of the show, and everything else in the show notes at bradleyjohnson.com forward slash 21. Thanks for listening. And without further delay, my conversation with David Bach. Welcome, everyone, to this week's episode of the Elite Advisor Blueprint Podcast. I'm incredibly excited. I have my buddy David Bach here with us today. Welcome, David, to the show. Brad, thank you. It's great to be with you, buddy. Good to see you. You inspire me, man. I've had a chance now to see you uh, two or three times live. You've done some private trainings for us and thank you. always deliver. So I expect awesome things from this conversation. You, you, you expect me to not suck right now? <laughs> <laughs> I know you won't. I just, I just know it can't happen. 
and with that in mind, let's go ahead and hop into this because I think yeah. one thing when you have a couple things in your intro, when it says nine time consecutive New York Times bestseller has appeared on Oprah Winfrey six times. I just hear right now in some financial advisors' minds, there's a little switch that just clicked off in their brain and they're like, well, this guy, he was just born with this intuitive sense to write best-selling books. And anytime you get a camera in front of him, you know, he's just going to light up the crowd and they're just going to be hanging on every word. However, knowing a little bit of your backstory and a little bit of your journey, I know that wasn't necessarily the case. So can you give us kind of your journey up until that very first Oprah Winfrey show. I would just love to hear the story. The whole journey. Give me the The, whole thing. It can be the condensed version (laughs) if you'd like. You know, okay. So once upon a time when I was born, no, I mean, I know you've got all these financial advisors who watch your show. And first of all, thanks for having me on the podcast. It's great to be with you. You do such great work and it's really a privilege to be here with you. And I appreciate people tuning in and I hopefully can give you guys some great advice today that you can use to grow your business. I mean, that's kind of the goal here. I grew up in the investment business. You know, my father was, they used to call them stockbrokers, right? Before they were financial advisors. So I grew up in the business. I remember it's take your son to work day tomorrow. And I remember as a little kid going to my dad's office. And back in the day, they were actually, most people who are going to watch this are not going to know what the hell I'm talking about, but they were called the ticker tape. It was actually the stock came off the ticker machine. And I would go and peel off the stock quotes and bring them over to my dad's office. That was what I got to do on a father Sunday. But my dad built his financial planning business through teaching seminars. And so, you know, when I was like nine years old, my mom would want a night a week off and I'd start going to my dad's investment classes and I'd sit in the back of the room and I'd dress me up in a suit and tie and I'd hand out the paperwork in front of the room and all his clients and, you know, prospects thought that was really cute. I think I probably helped his conversion rate, you know, when he got the appointments because I was there. I would sit in the back of the room and by the time I was 12, I was teaching my friend's parents why they should buy muni bonds and they shouldn't put their money in CDs because CDs stand for certificates of depreciation. Everybody knows that, 12 years old, right? So I grew up in the business. I always swore, Brad, that I wasn't going to go into the business. You know, I actually thought what my dad did at the time was kind of boring. And that's just like the total truth. Like I thought it was cool what he did, but it wasn't what I was going to do. And when I got out of college, I was an entrepreneur. I went into real estate thought that was going to be my path, loved real estate and made a bunch of money in real estate and then found myself teaching all my real estate buddies how to invest. And my father kept saying to me, why don't you just try this business for a year and see if you like it? I think you'd be really good at it. And at the time I was literally looking to invest in a business and he convinced me over lunch, he showed me how much money he was making And he said, I'm telling you, you would be a natural at this business. Just try it for a year. And this was 1993. And so I did. So in 1993, I went through the the time it was Dean Witter, which became Morgan Stanley. I went through their training program. I went through an actually extended training program in New York for about, about eight, nine months. I saw every part of the business. And when I came back and started working in the office, kind of side by side with him, I started teaching investment classes, like literally the first day, side by side with him. And in that first month of, you know, kind of working side by side with my father, my dad had built a really nice business. He had built a business which was over $100 million in our management at the time, but it was a solo practitioner business. He had one assistant. And I sort of saw the business and was really like, loved it, saw the opportunity to grow the business and started really growing it. And the first thing I did to really start growing it was teaching investment classes for women. 
And, you know, quick background on how that happened is I sat in on multiple appointments with women who had lost their husbands who were widowed. Mm. And we were teaching those women how to read the broker statements, know they were going to be okay financially. And I just, you know, my father had so much trust with his clients, but I realized, like I said to my dad, we need to do something to get all of our women clients up to speed. Because the fact that you're talking to the men, because there's a lot of traditional families, there's got to be something that we can do to have the women equally involved in the personal finances. Because we have all these older clients, doing these meetings reactively like this doesn't make any sense to me. We're teaching them how to read the brokerage statements, how to write checks, how to know they're going to be okay financially at the worst possible point in their life. Mm-hmm. And that was where I had my first light bulb moment, as I said you know, on the Oprah show, where I'm like, I'm going to try and teach a class for women and money. And so I created a class for women and money. And this was in the 90s. Nobody was doing it. We invited our clients and their friends to come to the first seminar. We had 225 women want to come to that first seminar. I couldn't fit them all in a hotel room. And I got the local media to come and they wrote a feature story about me and they put on the cover of the newspaper. And that really started me down the road of teaching classes for women and money. And that's where my passion for financial education really just exploded because I had this realization like my purpose I felt was to go out and teach a million women about money. So I created this massive goal, even though I was growing this huge brokerage business and financial planning business, I had this bigger goal to go out and reach a million women. And that's why I wrote the first book, which was Smart Women Finish Rich. And I haven't even got to the part where I'm on Oprah, but it took five books to get on Oprah. So by the time you end up on Oprah, people are like, oh, he's an overnight success. And I was, Brad. It just took 10 years. Uh-huh. It took 10 years, five books. I think I did 700 live seminars before I was on Oprah. And I had been on literally every single television show you could be on besides Oprah. I had traveled to every local market. I had started on college radio and cable television and been turned down by Oprah three times and had pitch letters going back to Oprah from 1994. When I actually got on Oprah, it was 2001. And I got on it with a book called The Automatic Millionaire. And then I became an overnight success. But, you know, really, I had four best-selling books before the Oprah show. And then with Oprah... That book jumped to number one, and then we had four books in the bestseller list. She had me right back again, and then we went, she had me back, and we did Smart Couples Finish Rich, which we're going to talk about in a second, and that led to having four books on the bestseller list at one time, which is, I don't think, ever been done in the history of, of certainly nonfiction business books, and that was an amazing year, and it's kind of been a rocket ship ever, you know, really ever since. It's been a decade. It's been a 15-year-long rocket ship. Well, it's interesting. One of my friends who's written a New York Times bestseller, Michael Hyatt, he says there's life before the book and there's life after the book. But I have a new term now. There's life before Oprah and life after Oprah, right? (laughs) Yeah. And I think, you know, I always tell people, you know, Oprah's an incredible platform, but I've enjoyed teaching seminars with 12 people and I've enjoyed teaching the same seminar with up to 30,000 people. And you've seen me on, my passion's the same. I love teaching people how to be smarter with money. I love teaching people how to live and finish rich. I've been doing it for 23 years. Some days I wake up and I'm like, is this deja vu? And I'm saying the same thing I was saying 23 years ago, but I still absolutely love the message. So, you know, I think when you love what you do, it comes through and that attracts people to your message and what you're doing. And it's the same thing for all the financial advisors. You show me a successful financial advisor, I will show you somebody who is deeply passionate about what they're doing. They love what they do. It comes through. And that's what attracts clients to them. 
So I want to unpack that Oprah comment from a little bit ago. What kept you going after three rejection letters? Like, what are you telling yourself? I mean, first one, I get it. Let's try again. Second one. But now you've had the third rejection letter. What? Actually, the first letter, they don't even respond. They weren't rejection letters. Actually, you get what's called a tryout. I mean, I actually was called. We pitched Smart Women Finish Rich. Mm -hmm. Didn't get on. They did another show for Women and Money that actually bombed. We pitched Smart Couples Finish Rich, ironically. Didn't get on. Then we did the Finish Rich Workbook. Didn't get on. But I had a couple like pre, what they call pre-interviews. They interviewed you. Mm -hmm. Just nothing came from it. And then with the Automatic Millionaire, I got an interview and I was on the, I was, you know, totally nervous, as you can imagine. I was, because this was a big deal. What was going through your head? I know there's the audience and they're sitting there. I'm sitting on Oprah's couch. I mean, what was going through your head? Sure. Well, so the pre-interview or the Oprah show, I mean, the pre-interview when I tried out for the show, like when you unpacked it, I thought, I just deeply wanted to go reach 10 million people. We had already, again, had four best-selling books, had a huge financial advisory business. I just wanted to go reach 10 million more people. Mm-hmm. And so I knew the opportunity to share the message of the automatic millionaire, paying yourself first, saving money automatically, buying a home, all these core financial planning messages. I knew if I could get it on Oprah, I could help a lot more people. When I did that interview, I was like so passionate and I had watched every show she'd ever done on personal finances. So I was prepared. Mm. The producer, Katie Davis was throwing everything at me. I got done with the interview. My wife said, well, how'd it go? I'm like, I'm never going to get on this show. It's just not going to happen. Everything I said, she had a rebuttal for. And I was totally bummed. And then the next morning, my publisher calls me and they go, I don't know what you said on that interview, but you were not only booked to go on Oprah. You are launching the book on Oprah. You are the first show of the new year. This is going to be massive. And so then when I taped the show, you actually taped the show for Oprah. You taped the show. Before. It's not a show that airs live. You taped the show. Mm-hmm. I taped the show at the end of November. It was the last show of basically the season before they go on hiatus. And they tell you, don't tell anybody you're, doing it, you're taping a show on Oprah. Because until your show airs, you never know. Because yeah. sometimes they'll tape a show and it doesn't air. Hmm. So don't go around telling everybody. And so I had to wait for six weeks. The show is taped. I just had to like wait, holding my finger that the show was actually going to air. And then fortunately, knock on what it did. And then the show was so successful, they immediately had me back. And we did another show. And that's when we did the show on Couples and Money. So, you know, it's been fun. It's been a really fun that time. That is a cool story. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Because I know everybody that has kind of an intro and it's like, I've been on the Oprah show. I think there's always in everybody's head, they're like, what was this guy really thinking, you know, through that whole process? So thanks for... Everybody's like, oh my God, that was a really long answer. Like they're 10 minutes into this podcast. (laughs) and haven't even talked about the business yet. Sorry, everybody. No, this is fun stuff, man. This is stuff people wonder about. Trust me. So let's dig in on the business front a little bit. Obviously, this is a podcast for financial advisors. One of the things that you have a knack for doing is taking stuff that can be really complex and simplifying it. And I love how you do it. So I want to share this because I was taking some notes and you have something. I'm making sure I don't butcher this here. It's your asset allocation approach. It's three words. They all start with the same letter. Do you mind sharing that and then digging into that a little bit? Because I think there's so much in that thought process. Sure. So, I mean, asset allocation, the three words are boring, boring, and boring. And, you know, it's funny when you get out in front of a lot of people and you teach over and over and over again. And I think anybody who's watching who teaches classes has learned this, that you have to take 
all this information and you have to bring it down to this and you have to make it really simple. It has to be simple. It has to be easy. It needs to be, it needs to not be intimidating. It needs to be actionable. And then ideally you wrap it all up in a bow, which is fun. And if you can make what you teach people about money to be easy and simple and actionable and fun, because fun's important because people are really scared when it comes to money. You know, when we're in the financial service industry and we know this language, I actually wrote a dictionary. I wrote the Oxford Dictionary on Money. It's a foreign language to people. And when you don't know the language and this money is like, people are terrified about lack of money and making the wrong decisions and not knowing what to do and feeling you know dumb because they don't know the language. The industry talks up here to people and really it's a turnoff. And so I just kept you know, chunking it down and making it simple, easy, actionable, and fun. And a lot of what I've taught has been taught before, but I've made it even simpler. Like I teach people to pay themselves first one hour a day of their income. You know, people talk about percentages. You should save 10% or 12% or 15%. That goes right over people's heads. When I was on Oprah and I'm like, look, one hour a day of your income, you're going to go to work at nine o'clock. You need to work from nine to 10 for yourself. They get it. It's like, oh, of course. Like, well, why wouldn't I keep one hour a day of my income? When I talk about, I'm, I'm sipping my little espresso here right now, but when I talk about the latte factor, you know, this idea that 5 to $10 a day, saving that money automatically can build, you know, compound interest, but I don't say compound interest. I say the latte factor. If you can cut out your latte and pay yourself first and put that in your retirement account, you can be wealthy, financially secure for life. I mean, that went all over the world, the latte factor. And because I took something and just created a metaphor that people could relate to. And that's what I love to do. Because when it's simple, and especially it's visual too, like you see me do some things on stage that are visual, which I mean, financial viruses have heard everything, but sometimes I'll look, oh God, that was so simple. I don't know why I didn't think about that. And I've created these tools that advisors can go out and use. We've had you know, thousands of financial viruses teach my seminars, and now we're going to have those available for all of our AE Wealth advisors. And they're just great, powerful programs that the advisors can go out and teach and then have the same success that I've had and have a success teaching their clients, teaching their prospects, and they get to grow a great business from it. Well, let's go back a little bit because on the boring, boring, boring section, and granted, you had an hour to explain this. We've got an hour total here today and we're going to cover a lot of topics. But I think oftentimes what I see in wealth management from my side dealing with financial advisors is they almost sell an asset manager like it's a financial services product. And so here was the track record last 10 years of this asset manager. And you spoke from stage on a few things of how that can really blow up. You know, when you have an underperformer, which none of us can predict the future of the market. And if you're looking to scale it, you've got to be able to train it, scale it, and then be able to sell it, right? And one of the things from an asset allocation standpoint that I like that you dug into is you're obviously not going to be able to sell any business that you can't retain your clients. And right. so when you go to boring, 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 one of the things that I love that you hit on is asset allocation should not be like super exciting. And so now I'm running down to my Fox business ticker at the bot each morning to where now my clients are like, Hey, did I win or lose last night or yesterday in the market? Can you talk to, I mean, you helped, well, number one, you grew your dad and your sister and your firm to over half a billion dollars. Then you hopped on an Edelman, took that to 13 billion. So obviously you have a knack for scaling and retaining clients. Can you unpack that a little bit? Because I see a lot of the opposite advice being taken in our industry by financial services guys. 
Yeah, so I think, first of all, it's just so everybody knows, the three words, it's trainable, scalable, and saleable. And the concept behind that is if you want to scale and sell anything, you want to build something that's really big, you have to be able to train to it first. Because once you can train to it, then you can scale it. And then if you scale it, then you can grow it. And then if you can grow it, you can ultimately sell it. And so asset allocation is not even, like when I say boring, 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 the reality is it's investing should be boring. Mm -hmm. So I say investing should be boring because your life should be interesting. So like what happens is when you have an interesting financial plan, you usually end up having a scary life. So the person who's you know going to the cocktail party, who's got this great investment, who's bragging about that great investment, they're never the ones that are then bragging about how poorly it did. And you know there are a lot of financial advisors who sell on sexy and sell on performance. And just the reality of life is when you sell on performance, you die on performance. It's just inevitable. And so, you know, when you look at the secret to businesses in financial planning that do really well, like the Bach Group today, when I left the Bach Group, we were a little over 700 millionaire management. Today, the Bach Group is at a billion dollars. My sister runs it. My dad's retired. I retired in 2001 from that business. The whole secret is, first of all, the hardest thing in this business to do is bring in a client. Once you bring in a client, the single most important thing is that you do a really good job for them. Doing a really good job for them is number one, you've educated them on the process. Because an educated client is a good client that will stay the course of time. And you know, we know that most investors don't even come close to matching what the market does because they're getting in and out of the market at the wrong times. And so do a lot of financial advisors. Unfortunately, there are a lot of financial advisors who are worse than their clients. They get scared. They chase performance. They panic when the markets go down. They duck and cover when these markets crash and they don't call their clients and hold their hands. So what does a good financial advisor do? If they're smart, they do a really clean business. They don't sell a bunch of garbage products. I mean, let's just call a spade a spade. Mm-hmm. You run a really clean business that's highly diversified, that's in the client's best interest, that's attached to a financial plan. You're not selling a product. You're selling a holistic-based plan where you've engaged the client in a true holistic-based conversation around what are their most important values, what are their dreams? What are their goals? What are their fears? And you play the role of a financial coach or a retirement coach. You're really there to coach them on the future of their life being better than their past. Like you've worked your whole life to be where you are today. You've come to me at the age of 62. And these can be the best years of your life. Let, let me help you do the planning so that you don't need to worry about money. And we help all the goals that you've got going forward come true. And the, the plan's just the plan's a part of it and the investments are a part of it. If you're chasing hot performance and you're selling performance, then as soon as things turn around and go the wrong direction, that client either doesn't trust you or doesn't stay the course. When you have a process with true diversification, the client doesn't even need to understand every aspect of diversification. They don't need to understand. You know, when we build portfolios for clients and you know, we're building them now with AA Wealth as an example, You take a portfolio where the average portfolio has somewhere between 15 to 19 asset classes. There's over 12,000 positions between stocks and bonds in over 40 to 60 countries. That's a typical portfolio. The client doesn't need to understand every single aspect of, you know, how much, what percentage is in small cap and mid cap and large cap. They want to know that you know, but in most cases, they just want to know, all right, you sat down with me, you got to know my risk profile, you worked on my goals with me, and you've got a system in place to really manage my money that's professionally managed, it's diversified, and you're overseeing this process. And 
that's what a good financial advisor does. And when a good financial advisor does that and then constantly stays in front of their client with financial education, with the same message, stay the course, don't time the market, we're here, you got a question or problem, you call us. Those clients stay around for life and those clients will refer more business to you. Sound advice. So let's go back just a couple there. Actually, there's a quote I just heard that I love. It was, you know, we can put a man on the moon, but yet no one can accurately predict the future of the market to this point, right? (laughs) And from a financial services perspective, there are certain advisors going back to that performance. Your client's not calling you up and high-fiving you if you beat your benchmark by 5%. However, on the back end, you know, you miss your mark, you underperform the benchmark by 10, 15, 20%. That's where you're losing clients. So I love that approach. And I wish I could just take that and download it into every financial advisor's brain out there because they'd have happier clients. They'd do a better job for their clients. And it's not complicated. It's not complicated. You know, financial advisors, unfortunately, a lot of advisors complicate their lives by making their business complicated. And you look at the people who've built great businesses. I mean, Edelman's a great example. I think they're up to 16 billion now. It's a very clean financial planning process. It's a very clean asset management process. Most billion dollar books to businesses, that's what you'll see. And when you see, you know, there's a reason why most advisors don't get over 50, 60, 70 million in management. First of all, it's the ceiling of complexity. They don't know how to put teams in place because you can only do so much yourself. And they often don't really build a clean business and clean businesses only get so big and then they don't last and nobody wants to buy them. So, you know, if you're running a business and it's a high commission business, but you don't have a clean business with residualized income that somebody else can easily take over and run, that business is not saleable. So one of the things, you know, I say to people, look, especially when we do these conferences, we got the average age in this business right now is about 59 years old. Now you've got a lot of people because you're a young guy, you got a lot of younger guys that are probably coming on board with you. But, you know, if you call a spade a spade, this industry is getting older. Mm-hmm. Average advisor is 59 years old. Average advisor probably wants to retire before 70, right? I mean, they're helping their clients retire before yeah. 70. So, you know, if you're in the business and you're planning on being in the business for five to 10 years longer, then you've got plenty of time left to clean the business, build it trainable, scalable, and saleable. And the best way to do that is to build a really well-managed, you know, a professionally managed business that has a team in place and has a duplicatable process. And I would think on the investment side, you really need to be using institutional level due diligence to build your portfolios. I see guys, you know, they're building their portfolios themselves with a yellow pad of paper, picking out some ETFs and calling it an asset allocation model. And I mean, especially today with what's going to, who knows where the DLL is going to end up, but Mm -hmm. in this day and age with litigation, I just don't know why any individual advisor would be building their own portfolios. Yeah. So to be clear here, I think I caught this, but you and Rick Edelman did not have a Monday morning meeting where you picked the hot stock of the week. Just to we, we did not have a Monday morning meeting. No, nope. completely <laughs> diversified portfolio with about 18 asset classes and built around 19, you know, over 25, 30 countries. I mean, just, and a real investment committee process yeah. with a true, you know, somebody overseeing those portfolios and then those portfolios. And, you know, we're doing this on the AA wealth side right now. Those portfolios are looked at daily. Yeah. automatically rebalance daily if they need to be based on the criteria of the portfolio. And they're custom made. That's yeah. the other thing. So, Well, I'm going to definitely carve out some time because I just want to know, I'm curious on what you've been cooking up for the special training event we're doing with you in June. Before I get there though, I've got to have you at least high level hit on this for a few minutes because it's gold. And once again, it's simple. That's what I love about it. So you have something called the art of the client referral. 
And this was something I want to make sure I'm not making this up. I believe you incorporated this back in the Bach group originally. Right. Yeah. Okay. So do you want to speak just high level and I'll kick you off down the right path. It starts with the advice that you gave, which was bad clients aren't fun. Great clients are a joy. And then you took it from there. So can you give just a high level framework that might be able to help some advisors out there? Yeah. Well, so before I go into the referral part, let me just go to the truth about this business. When you look at people who've built really big businesses, the number one thing they do is they market, right? I mean, so you show me typically a large financial advisor who's got a business that's growing at over 20%. And the thing is that they do is they've got a marketing system. Now, my personal belief is the best marketing system in this industry still to this day is seminar marketing which we should talk about that a little bit. But yeah. financial, you know, everybody says, you know, I've been hearing for 23 years, seminars don't work. And for 23 years, seminars worked and they worked 20 years before I got in the business. So the work at the Bach Group, they work at Edelman. Everybody I know who builds big businesses does seminars. That's just- a- And I've done at least 20 calls this year, digging into direct ROIs from some of the top performing financial advisors in the country, double the ROIs on radio. So, yeah, so well, and public, ra- just, public seminars, but radio. So now if I'm going to put them side by side, radio and seminars are one, two punch because mm-hmm. radios yeah. fill seminars. For so sure. they go really well together. So then the second part of this story is referrals. So a lot of advisors, when you meet them and you go, well, what do you use for a marketing system? What they say is Brad, Oh, I don't market. I get referrals. My whole business grows on referrals. Mm-hmm. What that really means is they don't have a marketing system. <laughs> because you can't dial up referrals. You can't tell me, well, I'm going to go spend this much money this month and get this many referrals. That's the problem with referrals. Mm -hmm. Referrals are critical. They happen to be the single biggest way that advisors who don't market grow their business. And so I think you need a marketing system over here, which I believe is seminars. And if you can add radio to it, then you're really powerful. If you can add TV to it, now you've got all three. But really, direct mail and seminars works. Then you need a system to get referrals. So when it comes to getting referrals, you need to be very clear about who you want referrals from. So, you know, people go through these cookie cutter referral programs, which is the thing that infuriates me about referral programs for the most part in the financial service industry is that they're created by people who've never been financial advisors, right? You've seen these very guys. True. Very true. And they're bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, I want to see, give me a referral program that actual real financial advisors use. So, what we use, what we created is before we focused on referrals, we didn't just go around saying to every client, you know, the greatest way we get appreciation from our clients is to get a referral from you because we don't want referrals from all of our clients. We want referrals from our best clients. We want to duplicate our best clients. So one day I had sort of this moment where I realized we lacked clarity, not only around who our best clients were, but we lacked clarity around it's we had done the classic things that people do. We had diagrammed our book A, B, C, D. These are the things that everybody trains to, and we had done all that. And that was a huge process by the fact when we did that. But one day I came to the office and I said, Who really are our best clients? And my team looked at me and there was kind of a silence in the room and my sister went and she got the book. She's like, here's the book, David. It's all here. We did this exercise last year. <laughs> you know, you made us run around for six months and put all this stuff together. Everything's in the system. Everybody's got a letter by them. We're doing the mailers to the top clients. I said, okay, I know that. But 
are those people in the A clients really our best clients? I know we did it off of revenue. Do we do it on referrals? Do we do it on how much we like them? Because I know, for instance, here's a client of ours that's a C client, and I named their name. I said, if we sit here on a whiteboard and we took this whiteboard out and go, let's go through the referrals that that C client gave us. We start going through the referrals that we got. It was like one, two, three, and how it all spun out. Mm. We had a C client that had given us as a result of a few referrals. We'd opened up like, I think at the time that year, at that point, was over $15 million in accounts from a C client. And they're down there in a C bucket because of their assets, of their revenue, when in fact, there's somebody that loves us that is tapped into all these wealthy people that is every time they're turning around, they're referring somebody to us. Now we go over to the A clients. I'm like, now let's talk about this guy. None of us like that guy. And he's in the top 25 clients. And then literally, as we're talking about how much we don't like that guy, that guy called the office. And so we're in a conference room and he wants to talk to one of us. Nobody wants, I don't want to take the call. Nobody else wants to take the call. It's like one of those shows, like, no, no, you take it. No, 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 you take it. And, <laughs> and so, you know, my assistant goes and takes the call and comes back into the conference room. And, you know, now the energy levels totally changed. Mm-hmm. And I go, see, why is that guy an A client? I go, here's what we're going to do. And so we went through a process and I want to give it all away because I want some of these people to come to our training. But I went through a process by which we actually went through our entire book of business looked at who needed to be removed from it. As we say, they need to go taken off the island. And so we went through, instead of focusing first on referrals, we actually went through a systemized approach by which we figured out who should be fired. And then once we did that, we became crystal clear about what type of client we never wanted to work with again, so we would never let them come back into the business. And then we drilled down who were our favorite clients. Who did we love working with the most? Once we identified who they were, what their avatar was, what we loved about them, then we had a process systematized by which we reached out to them and let them know face-to-face how much they meant to us, and then smothered those clients with love, service, and attention above and beyond. They became platinum clients, and in really focusing in on those platinum clients, our goal, we went out to double those clients in 36 months, and the system that we created helped us do that. And the beauty of it, because I've seen the whole process laid out, and I know you're going to cover this at the training in June. I think it's four total steps with a couple scripted notes and just the methodology. And it's really, that's the brilliance of it. So that's not normally something that I train to, right? Like I usually train on how to do these seminars and grow your business. And I did, it was interesting seeing like 400 advisors at that conference. And a lot of these guys have been in business a long time, right? Like, in fact, if you just want to turn off a room of advisors, get on stage and talk about a referral program. <laughs> And I even said that the moment I walked on stage, I'm like, all you're going to do to get advisors turned off is talk about referrals because we hate people who talk about referrals. And I had guys coming up to me afterwards. I had a guy come up to me, been in the business 42 years. And he was practically in tears. He's like, that is the best presentation I've ever heard. He's like, you know what? I'm going to go home and I'm going to fire all these jerks this week. And I, everything you said is totally on. And you're, you know, all these younger guys are so lucky because I just went through four decades of dealing with this and everything you said is true. And I got to hear that over and over again from people. So it was cool to see the impact that that talk had. Yeah. Everybody's had a bad client, unfortunately. And what you hit on, it's not only your energy, it's your team's energy. And it's just this vacuum when that client calls in that everybody's, like you said, dodging the call. And so. And here's the thing, just so people don't think I'm like this super big mean jerk guy, like, cause I'm not like. We had, you know, over a thousand households, I think 1500 households when we did this process. 
we probably narrowed it down to 40, roughly 40 to 50 clients that we wanted to remove. It's a small percentage, but everyone's got those. You're watching this right now. You can think about that five people right now that you just, they make you miserable, right? Like, you know that the moment you've got a review meeting, it's not just the review meeting. It's the day before when you're prepping for the review meeting. It's the going home and knowing you got to see the person the next day. It's the driving to the office. It's your staff knowing that everybody's going to be in a bad mood because the person's coming in. Those people are cancer to your life and to your business. And if you love your life and you love your business, then you deserve to let them go. You know, I've been teaching a concept called put yourself first. When we talk about pay yourself first, I think in the advisory business, it's also important to put yourself first. It's like when you're on a plane and they tell you the first thing the plane's going down, if you've got a baby with your kid with you, you put the mask on yourself and then you put the mask on your children because you've got to take care of yourself first in order to keep everybody alive. In the advisory business, often we, even though it's the best, it's, I think it's the greatest business in the world, a lot of advisors actually don't take care of themselves. They don't take care of themselves physically. They don't take care of themselves emotionally. They sometimes don't take care of themselves spiritually. And I've found that when I teach advisors to start putting themselves first, and becoming clear around like what they're no longer going to tolerate and accept in their life, their happiness level goes up incrementally. Like often faster than income can make your happiness level go up. Like there's just like, when you start to recognize I'm not going to have a bad client, I'm going to let the bad clients go. You feel very much empowered over your business. And that's how you should feel. You're an entrepreneur. You should feel empowered over your business. You should never feel like you're a victim in this business. I want to speak to that. I'll take this a different angle, but that comment, you're spot on. I literally just had a call last week, young guy, my age, working 80 plus hours a week, badge of honor, proud of it, has two kids at home. And I'm sitting there and I'm just like, that is not success. And I want to dig in here because I know at one point you'd been running hard, New York Times bestseller circuit for over a decade, I think. And at one point you woke up and you said, you know what? I'm retiring, I'm going on a sabbatical, whatever you want to call it. You hung out with your kids. So let's speak to that work-life balance. What did you learn from that time off? Did it clarify anything for you, David? Yeah, you know, Brad, it did. So I took a, I called it a sabbatical. I basically retired in 2013. I completely, and I planned an 18-month break. Mm. And my plan was, I'm just going to be a dad. You know, I got young kids. I got two boys. One is 13, one is seven. They're the light of my life. They're my favorite thing to do is hang out with them. And I just wanted to like take them to school and, you know, pick them up and go do baseball practice. And it wasn't that I had been gone for 10 years and missed all this stuff. In fact, I'm very proud that I've missed really very little. I really run my business with balance and with the life, but I've charged hard. I did 12 books in 10 years. I easily traveled a million miles. You know, when you hear, you know, yeah, I went over six times. I did the Today Show 100 times, I did 3,000 media appearances. I mean, all that stuff takes time. And taking off 18 months and just being with my family and being able to take a year off and you know, not work and do it proactively. Like, I didn't get sick. I didn't go bankrupt. I didn't have a drug addiction. There was no death in my family. Like, a lot of things create a reason why people have to stop. Yeah. I just said, you know what, I'm going to take... My wife said, what do you want for your birthday? And I said, I want a year off. And she's like, well, then well, can't you afford it? I said, yes. And she's like, well, then great, take it. <laughs> so I think what did it clarify for me? It clarified a lot of things. You know, at the end of the day, I mean, I'm actually thinking that's interesting. I did an interview on this yesterday too. At the end of the day, all my kids really care about is spending time with me. 
Right? Anybody who's watching all your kids really care about spending time with you. They don't care about how many, you know, how many books I've got up on the shelf over there. They don't care about how many TV shows that I'm on or how many speeches I did or how many applause. They just want to spend time with them. Yeah. And so does my wife. And then so do my friends. And then so does my family. I went and spent almost a month with my parents that year. Just hung out with them. I think that was an eye opener for me because spending three weeks just chilling at my parents' house. Ever since college, I mean, I see my parents for a day or two because I live on the East Coast and they live on the West Coast. I fly in, I'm spending two days and then fly somewhere else. You know, that was really nice. And then reconnecting with friends. And again, realizing like my friends were just happy to spend time with me. They couldn't care less what I'm doing work-wise. Mm-hmm. So that was an eye-opener. And probably the biggest gift from not working was I got a real sense of presence. You know, I became very present in my life. And now it's 2013. And I think I'm very present in my life at a different level than I was before 2013. So like I'm here right now fully with you. And part of what I took up in 2013 during my sabbatical that was life-changing is I learned how to meditate. Mm-hmm. And I've meditated already twice today. Meditate ahead of me. You're always one up in me. I only got <laughs> well, one today. You know, normally I would meditate around <laughs> four or five, but today I just knew it wasn't going to work. So I got my meditation at 12. And so I meditated at five and I've meditated at 12. And I took up transcendental meditation. I meditate usually twice a day, at least once a day. It is the greatest thing that I've ever done in my life. I'll meditate for the rest of my life. If I ever stop meditating, it's like shame on me. But there's probably nothing that I've ever done every day consistently like meditation. And that was a, is a total game changer. So anybody who's watching, you know, when you hear people say you should meditate because everybody says this, I would always say, I can't meditate. I can't get my mind to be quiet. I hated yoga because my mind's always going, going, going. Once you learn how to meditate, once you're trained, you can meditate. In one hour, you know how to meditate. And it's funny, I just did a podcast with Gene Chasky. I haven't seen Gene in three years. We did the Today Show for like three years together. And she looked at me and she's like, what did you do to yourself? Like, you look different. I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, I don't, she's like I don't, you seem so relaxed. I'm like, ah, I took up meditation. She's like, oh my God, I need to do that. How did you do that? So like, I just connected her with the person who taught me how to meditate. So I highly recommend meditation. I will co-author a book with you, Smart Financial Advisors Meditate, and we will take over the financial services industry by storm because there are so many high-strung type A personalities in our industry. If there's an industry that needs it, it's ours. So I'm so oh glad. God. Uh, I'll tell, on that, I'll tell you a funny story. I went on a, uh, a Grand Canyon trip with a lot of people in the industry that people probably know, like Bill Bacharach, mm. John Bowen. And it was like, I think there was... 13 or 14 of us on this Grand Canyon trip. This is a long time ago. But it was a 12-day Grand Canyon trip with no phones and no email. Mm. And by day three, day four, a lot of these advisors were freaking out. They were literally going through like the detox of like, oh my God, I can't call the office. And so yeah, I mean, when you go into business, you tend to be a very competitive person if you're successful or hard chargers. And that can be great to our success of business, but can also be very detrimental. You know, there's a lot of divorce in this industry, a lot of kids who don't grow up with their parents around. So I think we do a great job helping our clients. And a lot of times we need to make sure we help ourselves. Man, just that last 10 minutes is some of the best advice for financial advisors we've ever, ever had on this show. And it had absolutely nothing to do with financial services, the job. It had everything to do with just taking care of yourself, you know, and... So thank you for sharing that. That's 
you, you know, first of all, again, I'll tell you one thing too that I'll just throw out as something that I don't for advisors when you think about taking care of yourself and taking care of your clients. Most of our clients came to us before they're about to retire. And I'd say 36, anywhere from one, two, three years before they're about to retire, right? So they come to a seminar, they're a year, two, three years out before they're going to retire. Some cases it's, you know, 60, 90 days, but those are like the last minute people. So the first thing I always ask, especially if it's the men, when they come into our office in the first appointment is when's the last time you had a physical? When do you have your blood work done last? And, you know, if they're coming in, we only do meetings with couples. Like if you're married, you're not coming into our office without the wife. I mean, every time you do that, the wife looks at him and goes, looks back in their eyes. They're like, yeah, because the wife's worried about the husband dying. Yeah. You know, I saw firsthand, you know, I had some clients retire and then drop dead within six months. And so I started realizing like, you know, what is the point? If you don't take care of your health, who cares if you have all this money? So we always would say in the first appointment, like, when did you go out of physical? When was the last time you did your blood work? Are you working out with the trainer? And that's a really important conversation. They'd say, well, God, you're not even talking about my money. I'm like, because look, the time to start working out is not the day you retire. <laughs> time to start working out is before you retire. What a lot of men do is they take really terrible care of themselves. Then they retire. Then they're like, okay, now I'll go take care of myself. Mm. A lot of financial advisors, again, don't take great care of themselves. And then there's a point where it's like, well, eventually I'm going to get to this. So I don't know. I'm just a big believer in self-care. There's a book I read that changed my life called Not Fade Away. Have you heard of it? No. There, there's a, it's a true story, but it's basically a media mogul that built a ton of these different networks. I think BT was one of them. Multimillionaire decided to retire and literally diagnosed with cancer within a year of retiring. And just money is nothing when you don't have your health. That was the big takeaway from that whole book. And it was heartbreaking, but you're so true because a lot of retirees, a lot of financial advisors, it's fully within their control and they're sacrificing their life, their livelihood for what shows up in the bank account. So yeah. yeah. Okay. We've got two different ways we can go. We'll have a chance to have more conversations in person. So I'll give you the complete choice, David. So you mentioned seminars before. We've got about five minutes left. We can go deep there, or I can ask you more philosophical questions about life in general, and we can end the interview that way. What do you think? Where do you want to I'll tell you what. You want to go 10 minutes, and we'll do both? Okay. Let's do it. All right. So, because I definitely want to talk about seminars, because I want to put a uh, true plug in for what we're about to do. So I've got three seminars that we created where we've had over a million people go through the seminars around the U.S. and Canada. And so the first seminar is Smart Women Finish Rich. The second seminar is Smart Couples Finish Rich. And both those seminars for nearly a decade, we, we had licensed them to a financial service company and they distributed them through the whole industry. And we had thousands and thousands of advisors who taught those seminars. And then I took the seminars off the market. And I relaunched the seminars with Edelman and then I took the seminars back and now we're going to relaunch them again with AU Wealth Management. So what I've just completed and what we're super excited about is we have redesigned Smart Couples Finish Rich. It is now a 90-minute seminar. It's called Smart Couples Smart Retirement, the retirement seminar. I've already tested it. I've toured with it in the past. It's now updated for 2017. Advisors that are on our AA Wealth platform are going to now have access to that seminar to teach it to help them grow their business. So this seminar is completely turnkey. You literally go, it's, it's got all the training. And it's got the mailers, it's got my brand on it. And so those are going to get launched here in the next 90 days to our, again, the advisors that are already on the AWealth platform. We're super excited about that rollout. And we've got advisors that will start testing that, I think, in the next 60 days. Uh, and then we'll 
kind of roll it out in a bigger way come September. And that seminar is really designed for those who are right about to retire or have already retired. And so that's super exciting. And then we're going to re-roll out an updated version of Smart Women Finish Rich because I think the I know the women's marketplace is just huge need, huge opportunity. So that's going to be available for our advisors on AME Wealth. I've seen a lot of the seminars that are done out there. They're just sort of okay. There's a lot of seminars that people teach that they get okay results, but they're not great. And I think what I've been really fortunate to do because I've done this for so long and is really figure out what makes a seminar work right and how to get somebody in 90 minutes totally empowered, totally excited, ready to take action, and then also ready to work with the financial advisor. So excited to go roll those out. And that's going to be a big deal. And we'll talk about that also in the training program that we're going to be doing. Very cool. And I've seen the behind the scenes work and I've seen some sneak peeks at what's getting ready to get rolled out. And it is incredible. And I'll even speak to, you mentioned it at the beginning of our conversation here, we've literally on AE side, I know, you know, Josh, that's been flying around all over the country doing exit surveys from people that have gone to seminars. And what we find is exactly what you said early on. We're talking all of these financial services, acronyms, 12B1 fees, and your normal retiree that's sitting there that might not have a financial services background, it's going right over their head, right? And just twice already at the beginning of the conversation, you mentioned the latte factor. You broke things down. You made analogies where people get it. You mentioned work the first hour of your day for yourself. People get that. And that's the beauty of what you package in a seminar to me is you take these really complex financial, the financial world that overwhelms everyone and you simplify it and put it in real world terms that people get and they can make sound decisions on. So I'm super excited about that, David. And thank you for all the work you put into that because I know you've done a ton to update those and rework them and roll them back out to our advisors. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm excited. It's going to be great. So anything else on the seminar front? I know you've spoken to over a million people across the world. If you've got any quick seminar tips you'd like to give before we roll into the final questions here, you're welcome to throw them out or we can move on. Okay, quick tips. First thing is the beginning of most seminars for someone who's teaching a seminar, it's always about your story and your story is not your bio. Mm. So whenever you're being interviewed, right? Like you need to tell your story in a very short, concise way in which people very quickly feel like they know you and know who you are and they know why you care. Because they're trying to make a decision very quickly, like in the first six, seven, eight minutes, do they like you? And then they can trust you. Mm. And what a lot of advisors do is they get up there and they're like, hello, my name is David Bach. I'm a senior vice president of Morgan Stanley and I have $70 million in our management and I have one of the biggest teams in the country and we work with high net worth individuals. Like, I feel I would never do that. Right? So, like, that's what most advisors do. And the person just sitting there and they're like, you know, all they hear was rah, 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 like, or come on and go, you know, you're probably wondering, like, first of all, the seminars for women and money, you're probably wondering, what in the world is this guy doing up here even teaching a class for women and money? It's a great question, by the way. What happens to be, I learned about money from my grandmother. My grandmother, Rose Bach, an amazing woman. She started with, you know, and I have a whole story about my grandmother, how she helped me buy my first stock at age seven. All true, all my stories, by the way, you have to have true stories. But, you know, like within the first two, three minutes, you've got a whole, you can see me. Like when I told the story about learning about business from my father, little kid going to his investment classes. And you got to humanize yourself very quickly in the very beginning of that seminar. Then the most important thing is it's not what's on the slides. Cause you know, we all use PowerPoint slides. Typically I have a lot of PowerPoint slides in my seminars. It's what you say in between the slides. So 
it's not the slides, it's the story in between the slides. And it's the story that everything needs to have a story to it because human beings, we learn through stories. And I think a big thing I do with my seminars is different than most people's seminars is typical financial seminars are designed to wound the individual who's in the seminar. It's the old sales process of wound him and heal him, right? I've literally seen trainers say, your job in a seminar is to break their legs. Have that person come to you and they're crawling to you and you're going to lift them up. People call it disturbia. You know, I'm the exact opposite. I teach a seminar. I'm there to educate you, entertain you, and empower you. Some of you that are here are going to do this yourself. It's fantastic. I hope you take all this information. God bless you. Go back to Vanguard. I hope they do a great job for you or wherever you're going to go do it yourself. Beautiful. Some of you are here because you're actually looking for a financial advisor. You're looking for education. You're looking for a new financial advisor. And if that's you, that's great. Some of you are going to want to come meet with us at the end of the seminar. Like there's a whole process I teach on how to close these seminars because you need to weed out who's doing it themselves and who's looking for advisor. One that, and I guess I'll close on this part, huge mistake that advisors make, and I made this early in the business, was if you teach a lot of seminars, it's all about the closing rate. How many people ask for an appointment? And like, you know, if you've been trained and you're a numbers person, we obsess over our numbers. How many people came to the seminar? People call them buying units, terrible phrase. They'll call them buying units, their families, their human beings. But this idea of how many people asked for appointment and how many people came into your office is the wrong data point if you're bringing the wrong people in the office. So, you know, I meet people and they're like, oh, I got 75% of the people that ask for an appointment. And then, then you drill into the numbers. And by the way, of the 75%, only half of them actually showed up for the appointment because what they're getting is they're convincing people to check off the box, but then they're now really, really ready to fall through. Then they're getting do-it-yourself tire kickers in their office. And so I learned after I got really good at closing and getting lots of people to ask for appointments and then realizing like, I'm wasting a lot of time on the wrong prospect. I got really good at, in the closing process of the seminar, very transparently, authentically, telling people, here's who should come into our office. These are the type of clients that we work with, including saying to people, we only work with nice people. So if you're not nice, and I say this like literally like, if you're not nice, don't try to sneak into our office and people crack up because I'm like, you know who you are if you're not nice. Don't come into our office because we'll figure it out in the first 10 minutes and then we're not going to let you become a client anyway. So in order to come into our office, number one, you need to be looking for a financial advisor. You need to be willing to pay a fee because we charge a fee. This is not furry. And you need to be a nice person. And you want help. And by the way, and you just saw what we taught about. We're not looking for, if you're coming into like trade stocks or you want to get the highest performing you know, money manager, that is not us. So if you want a financial plan based on your goals, dreams, and values with an institutional level of money management done honestly, done ethically, we're going to take care of you and always be there for you. That's what we do. If you're looking for the cheapest, lowest cost price possible, then that's great. There's tons of firms out there that can help you. We hope the seminar really helped you. I want everybody who comes to my seminar to feel like they left and they got value. I want the right people who are in the room to come into my office to hopefully become a client. It's like you've done this before, man. <laughs> and that was, it's a good thing we recorded this because that was gold. Well, thank you for sharing that. That was like, yeah, you're welcome. There's like four right there, right in a row, rapid fire. So that's going to help a lot of people. See, out. now the beauty of recording this is I don't actually have to ever do this again. Now we just take this thing and plus really replay. <laughs> hey, however I can help, man. <laughs>
All right. Let's flip into a few questions to wrap up. This has been awesome, David. I appreciate it. You're welcome, Brad. Thank you for having me on. This has been a blast. All right. First question for you. When you hear the word successful, who's the first person you think of and why? Wow. Um, you know, it's funny. I'm going to think of my wife. I think my wife's incredibly successful. And I think that she's incredibly successful. So my wife, Alicia Bradley Bach, I think she's successful because she just has an incredible... She has more friends than anybody I've ever met. I mean, the, the woman is just loved by everybody. And so to me, she's successful because she's had a very successful career, but she just deeply cares about other people and people deeply care about her. Mm. That says a lot. When it's all said and done, who shows up at the funeral, that says a lot about how you lived your life. So can have a big, let me tell you, I don't want her to go anywhere on me. She's uh, <laughs> Her funeral is going to be huge. <laughs> hope I go first. <laughs> yeah, she'll, it'll be like, this guy sold all the books, but his wife is who everybody showed up. See, I keep telling her I want to live to be at least 100, 110, 120. She's like, I'm not hanging out with you that long. I'm like, no, 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 we're going to do all these healthy things because, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm on the Peter Diamandis 120-year-old train, right? Like, I love it. I love it. All right. This will be a fun one coming from a guy that's written as many books as you have. What's the favorite book that you've ever read and why? Oh, man. Okay, so I'm going to, you know, that one I actually, that's easy for me to answer. It's The Alchemist by Paulo okay. Coelho. Yeah. I would think most people who have read that book, but The Alchemist from Paulo Coelho is just such a great book. And he's sort of my, you have an idol, like somebody that you always hope to be you can meet. And, mm-hmm. you know, obviously one of the biggest writers of our lifetime and worldwide. I think he's probably sold a hundred, over, uh, who knows? Last time I saw him, he sold 150 million books. So he's probably at 200 million books. But I had the chance to go out to have dinner with him in Switzerland. And that was really cool. You know, hanging out with Paulo Coelho, you know, who I had been, just love his books and just love the kind of writer that he is. And seeing, you know, seeing, by the way, how driven he still is, is also remarkable. Like the common thing is like, and talk about a rock star. I've been with a lot of famous people, but Paulo Coelho is a rock star. I mean, you're walking through the streets of Geneva and Paulo, 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 like, and he loves, you know, hi to everybody. Out drinking late night with Paula Coelho, that's a kick. Um, so, that, so that would be the book. That's an amazing book. How old were you when you read it the first time, if you don't mind sharing? Um, I read that book in my 30s. And that's the kind of book, too, that you can probably go back and reread yeah. like every year, every five years. I mean, it's just that book. And then, I mean, I'll give you another book if you want another book. Yeah, um, let's hear it. This one, I can't say I met him because he passed away, but it's definitely Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Oh, uh, yeah. And that's because... That's the first self-help motivational book I ever read. And I read it when I was 19, living in Waikiki Beach for the summer. And that book changed my life. And then that's what led me down the path of self-improvement. That's crazy. So I want to backtrack because I don't know if you knew this, but I read um, The Alchemist the first time I was reading Steve Jobs' Isaacson biography. Steve Jobs reread that book every year. The Alchemist? Yes. So it's interesting that that's your book because he was obviously a big dreamer. You were a big dreamer. I mean, you you were writing books before it was cool to write books as a financial advisor. So that's cool that you have that aligned with him. And then How to Win Friends and Influence People. Man, that's like, if I could live my life by the principles of that book, I'd be doing well for myself. And that's another one of those books that, you know, I think that Dale Carney even said in the beginning of that book, you should come back and reread this book. Like, I forget it was every 90 days or once a year. But I could reread that book again right now. And it's all the classic things that we know we should do, but we stop doing them. Yeah. My guess is your wife practices a lot of those, whether she knows it or not, just based on what you've already said about her. Yep. 
So, all right. Time for two more? Sure. Okay. This one I've never asked before, so this will be fun. What is something you would like to see as absurd 25 years from now? Wow. Um, I got to think about how to answer this question without being political. (laughs) So I wrote a book called Go Green, Live Rich, because I have a big belief in the need for our world to take care of its our environment Mm. so that our kids will have a planet to enjoy. So there's just a lot of things that we do to our planet that are absurd. And I don't even think I need to make the list right now. I just yeah. think that there, you know, I think 25 years from now, the idea of getting gas for your car will probably be absurd. I mean, we can make electric cars in 25 years. Everyone would be driving an electric car. And, you know, I think the day will come when I hope when we'll look back and go, my God, really? We like, we used to go and get gas for our cars. And people know that's absurd. I can't believe that we did that, but you know, the power of the car industry and the oil industry is so huge. I don't know that that day will come. So that would be a major monumental environmental shift that um, I'm not trying to be political, but hey, hey, you're in a safe spot. I have solar panels and I live in the middle of Kansas. So I can uh, get on that cause right there. So I completely. Actually, and I'll do one more absurd. You know, our healthcare system in this country is fundamentally absurd. It's just, it's heartbreaking how bad and how broken and how corrupt our healthcare system is. The cost of healthcare in this country is absolutely inconceivable and it is a complete scam. And I'll give you an example that I was just in Aspen, Colorado, where my son got hurt on the mountain and had to be taken down. And fortunately, he's okay. I probably didn't need to take, but we took an ambulance from the bottom of Ajax to the hospital in Aspen. And I said to the guy, and they were looking at me like, you know, are you sure you want to? I'm like, my kid's in a stretcher. They're putting him in the back of the ambulance. And then they say to me in the back of the ambulance, would you want to take the ambulance or do you want us to get you a cat? What would you do, right? You're the father. I said, and the fact that they're like asking me the question three times, I said like, guys, what does it cost to take this ambulance to the hospital? The hospital's literally like eight minutes away. Uh, they're all, well, we don't know, but we need to verify it's okay. Your insurance will probably pay for it. So we take the ambulance to the hospital. What would you guess that that eight-minute ambulance ride cost? I'm going to guess it's absurd on some levels. So just pick a number. What would you guess? I just knowing how that system works. Let's say two grand. Let's say two grand. $1,850. $1,850. Now, the hour and a half that I spent at the hospital having my son have an x-ray where they could tell us nothing was wrong, the whole process was five grand. That's just wrong. So... Healthcare is fixable. It's been fixed in many countries. It is something that we could choose to fix. And I hope that in 25 years, we will have fixed it. You can tell I feel pretty strongly about that. Hey, I think both of those are for the better of society. So, uh, you know, and the sad thing too is financial planners is if you really dig into financial planning, what's the single biggest thing our clients need to worry about is healthcare costs. Yeah. And it shouldn't be that big of a worry. So, now I feel like we're ending on a downer. We have to. No, you're good. I'm going to bring it back with this next question. You're good. You're good. If you could, and obviously you know who the audience is here. So when we're directing this at financial advisors, if there was one thing, if you could distill it to one thing to share with our audience that's led to your success, what would that be, David? I think it's all about purpose. So in my case, I 
became very clear at a very young age what my higher calling was and what my purpose was. And I felt like I was put here. I have a deep belief in God and a higher spiritual calling. And I think we're all put here for a purpose. I think each and every one of us, you were put here for a purpose. There's every single person who's watching this was put here for a reason. And our clients were put here for a reason. And I think tapping into what your purpose on this planet is, whoever your higher calling is, tapping into that higher calling and recognizing that we're spiritual beings and we're here for a reason and then doing your best to go fulfill that. So I just very young realized, like, I think I'm here to do something to try to help as many people as possible. And my calling and my purpose was originally to go help a million women be smarter with their money so they could go and protect their families. That was my purpose. And so everything I did was based around that. And that actually led me out of the financial service industry and now I've come full circle back into it. But Looking at that higher calling, people go, why did you leave Morgan Stanley? You had this huge book of business. You were set for life. It was because I had this higher calling. Now, having a higher calling, by the way, doesn't always make your life easy. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, I could have had a much easier life just being a financial advisor. My sister's got a nice, she works her ass off, but she's got a nice, easy life. Yeah. And not everybody, I'm not saying that you have to go change the world. I think figuring out what your purpose is in whatever it is. Maybe your purpose is just to be an, the ultimate dad or really be of the highest possible service to your top, you know, to your 400 clients. But I will say this, I think for advisors who are watching, often we're so busy working that we don't have time to focus on, like a question is powerful. It's like, what are you here for? Mm -hmm. And I recommend to advisors who are working five, six days a week that you take a day a week off. And I know I was working six days a week and I originally took a day a week off to go write my book. And that's what allowed me to go write the book. Because I took Wednesdays off and I decided I'm going to take Wednesday off and write the book. If I hadn't taken a day a week off, I would have never written the book. When I went from working six days a week to five days a week, my business actually grew. Eventually, I went from working five days a week to four days a week to eventually three days a week because then I was writing books two days a week. The business doesn't need you every day if you do it right. And there's a lot that you can do with that other time. And if I could encourage anybody who's watching this, who's really here going, okay, I came here because I want to grow my business. Sometimes one of the best things you could do to grow your business is actually block a day a week off your calendar. And on that day, don't work on your business, go work on your life, whatever that looks like. Go golfing, spend it with your wife, take the kids to school, go to the gym, go to the doctor because you haven't had a physical uh, and let your team take, you know, if you've got a team, let your team work that day. And that can change your whole outlook on this business, by the way, just realizing that you could go and do that. And experiment with it. Some people are like, I could never take a day a week off. Start with a half a day. It's addictive, by the way. Let's <laughs> <laughs> take a half a day. You're like, okay, they got this. By the way, you're, if you got a team, even if you've got one or two assistants, if you delegate right, they love having you out of the office. They're thrilled. <laughs> so, it's the most productive day. I've heard it over and over. Day, totally. Well, that's incredible advice and, and a great way to, to end the conversation. So David, I mean, just, I want to say thank you. I've seen it firsthand with just our group of advisors, how you've already impacted them in a super short amount of time. And I know you've been impacting basically the general American consumer and helping them get smart with their finances for much longer than you've even been impacting us. But I just want to end the conversation here and say thank you. Speaking of purpose, welcome. your purpose has affected a lot of lives in a very, very positive way. So there's something to be very proud of. So I just want to end and say thank you. And it's been an honor having you on the show. So I appreciate it. Brad, listen, thank you. I'm really glad we put this together. I know it took us a while to get it done, but it's been great. I've had a blast doing this. I hope it helps a lot of people. And thanks for giving me the opportunity to do it. You're welcome back anytime, my friend. Okay. Have an awesome day. Take care.
Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Elite Advisor Blueprint. For access to show notes, transcripts, and exclusive content from our show's guests, visit bradleyjohnson.com. And before you go, I've got a quick favor to ask. If you're liking the podcast, you can help support the show by leaving your rating and review on iTunes. Not only do we read every single comment, but this will help the show rank and get discovered by new listeners. It really does help. Thanks again for joining and be sure to tune in next week for another episode. The information and opinions contained herein are provided by third parties and have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed by Advisors Excel. The guest speaker is not affiliated with or sponsored by Advisors Excel for financial professional use only, not to be used with the general public or in a sales situation.